0: Welcome to talk in Migration, I'm Clara Sandlind and talk in Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. In this episode, I talk to Ahmed Al-Rashid, who came to the UK from Syria in 2015. Since arriving in the UK, Ahmed has become a campaigner for refugees and refugee integration. He's working with the course Aim Higher, Access for Higher Education for Refugees and Asylum Seekers and he's just finished a Master's degree in Violence, Conflict and Development at SOAS, University of London. He's also known from the BBC documentary Exodus, which followed refugees on the journey to Europe, partly filmed by refugees themselves. To start, I asked Ahmed Al Rashid to tell us about his journey from Syria to the UK.
1: Their story begins... Um, <clears throat> I, was, I was doing my BA in English Language and Literature at the University of Aleppo when the Syrian um, uprising started. So at that time, in my town, it was peaceful, it was normal. Um, But as time went by, things started changing. So there was like, kind of um, both conflicts to the party started targeting the town. The government was targeting the town and some radical elements of the opposition Started attacking the town as well. Eventually um, Isis and Al-Qaeda uh, managed to um, take control of the town and I, I had to flee because I I was active on social media at that time. So I I was posting on Twitter um, on, on Facebook and 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 you know on YouTube about the the human rights violations then um, then I became a target myself because it was in Kurdish in Arabic and in English So I fled to northern Iraq, um, to the Kurdistan region of Iraq. There, um, it was um, beginning um, earlier 2013. There I joined the United Nations. Um, So I was working as a communication for development um, facilitator um, with the University of um, Iraq. It was a great experience for me because I've learned so much. At the same time, it was a heartbreaking experience because I, I came across, you know, a Hundreds and hundreds of stories of people like Syrians, you know fleeing the country and coming to northern Iraq to the Kurdish region of Iraq Um there was like no food. There was um, <clears throat> No services during the emergency, you know one day the thousands of people started arriving And for me, this was hard to break in because these people um, didn't know what to do um, For a lot of these people didn't know h- How to communicate with others and and like even for the government the local government was like in a state of shock They didn't know what to do with it So um, the few few uh, few weeks were very tough with people like, for instance, dozens and dozens of people, um, you know, queuing in a in a a long queue just in order to get food or 200 or over 200 people literally in one long queue to go to the toilet, you know, to the latrines uh, where they set up these refugee camps. So this was a very difficult experience for me. And then I started working, you know, um, when ISIS took over Mosul. And the massive influx happened from Iraqi themselves. They came to the Kurdish region and other parts of the world. Things got very complicated and Iraq was not safe anymore. And I could not go back to Aleppo. I could not go back to Syria. Um, Iraq itself was descending into chaos. And then the, I decided to move on. Then I moved to southeast of Turkey. And um, southeast of Turkey. Then I made it to Izmir in Turkey. There I met uh, another smuggler. Um, who told me that um, I'm going to help you, you know, cross. Um, and we agreed that is going to be a rubber dinghy. And, uh, well, no, it was not. In, in fact, it, we agreed there's going to be a yacht, you know, um, a proper yacht. And he showed us the pictures of the yacht. And it was, um, he said 24 people. And it will be like a, a very easy um, journey if you follow the instructions. And we paid the money. And um, the money, of course, went to a third party person who is the smuggler's best friend. So we give him the money and he takes kind of a commission about 50 up to 100 euros. And he gives us a secret digit code. When we land in our destination, we call him and he hands over the money to the smuggler. So the day came and we did not know what was happening. We were driven in a bus for about three hours and we ended up on a beach um, in in west of Turkey, you know, in a place called Bodrum. And we figured out that it was not a yacht, it was not a boat, it was that rubber dinghy. And he said, look, um, we told him, like, this is cheating. I mean, you, you promised going to be a yacht and now it's a, it's a rubber plastic dinghy. And they just shut up and he started shouting and, you know, he was all armed. There was a group of smugglers, you know, other people with him so they sort of beating people and kind of they got their knives and they got like coves, AK-47 and and we did not know what to do. I mean we didn't know what to say and there was an Iraqi man who said okay I'm going to call the police and they kind of they went crazy these smugglers and they attacked the man in front of his family and he was bleeding and when, when we saw this it was middle of the night we did not dare to do anything we just we we were forced into this dengue and then, um, we were so lucky because, um after three hours, we made it to Kos Island in Greece. Um, but the journey itself was 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 horrific. It was a terrible journey of eighty eight people, half of them were women and children um the linghi, I mean the dinghy was leaking already, you know, it was going down, it was sinking, and everyone was panicked, so we did our best to keep everyone calm because. If it starts being totally chaos, it will capsize and it will be a disaster. So we managed to get there after three hours. After that, I got uh, papers which allowed me to go to main, mainland Athens. From there, I met another smuggler <clears throat> after contacting him on Facebook and social media. And he gave me kind of, um, a, a fake Bulgarian passport, which enabled me to fly, to take a flight from Athens to Marseille. Um, in France so, um For about it was two hour and a half journey. So um, I landed in in France in Marseille Then I took a train to Paris then I went to Calais Calais was a terrible place I still remember it, you know, uh, it was a very very difficult place. There were thousands of people there There were hundreds of children and um, unaccompanied children. There was no food most of the time It was no shelter um, a lot of criminality growing on, and there was no safeguard for these kids. So I spent about about 10 days, more than 10 days, every day chasing cars and lorries and trying to, to hide, you know, in the back of cars and, and lorries and refrigeration with food and vegetable. The last night in Calais, a smuggler um, from Egypt, he put me and other seven people in a tanker full of bread flour. And he said it will be two hours. And you will be in London, and and we, we were so excited because it was just literally two hours as he promised. Then then the journey will be over. So he put us. We had to you know kind to of slip through the the hole up in the the, the tanker, and with the smuggler he came and, and he he locked the hole. It was total darkness, and then and when he when when we literally we were sinking, you know, we were sinking in flour. We were covered in flour. Um so up to my chest, I was covered in flour. There were seven people. When the smuggler walked away, he locked the, the hole, you know, the, 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 the door of that tanker. And it was well, total darkness. There was no air. We couldn't see anything. There was no light. And we couldn't breathe. Everything we were breathing at that time was this uh, flour, you know, dust. And we tried to call him, but unfortunately, there wasn't any any signal because it was... You know, insular because of like it was a metal and like the reception didn't um, go through. So like um, no jeepers, no nothing. And we we we, we start we panicked. We, we look, we're going to die. I mean, we, we were going to get killed. This is this is crazy. And and we I I told the guys, look, guys, we need to knock because if, if we stay longer, we're going to die. And they told me, look, shut up, you coward. I said, look, I am not a coward, but we are going to die. So eventually, I I didn't have an option but just to keep quiet. After like five hours, the tanker started moving. After like nine up to eleven hours, the we we all started losing conscious. We we couldn't breathe anymore, and the, the tanker was moving. So we eventually we gave up and we started knocking and knocking and knocking, and and the driver stopped and he let us out of that tanker. And To our surprise, we were near the Italian border. It was the wrong car. It was the wrong driver It was the wrong everything and 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 it was a shock. It was a massive shock. We didn't know what to do I mean, uh, we didn't have an option but to put our faith in that criminal but Here we go and eventually uh, I went back to Cali. from there to Belgium then I moved to Germany where I decided To to, to apply for asylum But again, I had a brother um, who made it to, to Germany in 2014. I told me, look, you still got a family member in, in Aleppo, in Eastern Aleppo, and and if you stay in Germany, it might be very long for you to get the refugee status, then um, get the family reunion. I please just try to make it to the UK. Then I met another smuggler, and um, he put me in the back of a lorry. After three nights, um, I, I eventually made it to the UK. Um, and Yeah.
0: Wow. <laughs> how long, uh, how long uh, did this take you?
1: It took me 55 days, from the first step till the day I made it to the UK. Yeah,
0: from, from, from Turkey or from, uh, from Iraq?
1: No, um, I, from Iraq I went back to Syria, but I couldn't go to Aleppo. Right. So it, it was from Syria, from northern Syria um, to the UK.
0: Right, okay. And, and part of this journey was documented in this um, documentary, Exodus, um, yes. So why did you decide to to take part in this um documentary?
1: Initially I did not intend. I mean I started documenting my journey um for my family. I was away from my family at that time. The family was in Aleppo and it was I was in in northern Syria and was away for more than 2 years, you know, in Iraq. So we couldn't see each other. Um, and, uh, we couldn't be with each other. So I, I managed to get the word through to my, to my family. I said, look, I'm going to make this journey and I'm going to make, you know, like take pictures and videos of the journey. And if things go wrong and, um, and if I lose my life, um, here is my password, here is my email and you will have full access to all the pictures and the videos that I'm, that I've taken um and this was the initial idea you know i've never never uh, intended i mean it was never intended to be in the public um sphere then um i d- started documenting it then i i i remember when i when i arrived in greece um there were like a bunch of people um shooting pictures and um, here and there and and one of these guys approached me and i said look um we were we were making a documentary about migration and refugees for the bbc um would you be willing to share the footage that that you've got um with us or no i said i'm, I'm not really sure then i said okay let me think about it after like after two days i i had to think about it then i said okay um if it's going to be about migration um as long as they're not going to kind of use it for you know kind of uh, alter the facts or and he told me you no know, this is gonna be a documentary, um and um, it will be mainly about refugees that is showing the journey themselves. So this kind of, you know, made me okay, feeling ease and um this encouraged me. Then I said, Okay, um I gave them the footage and I gave them the permission um to use it.
0: So were you hoping that um maybe by taking part in this you could um be a part of you know, changing attitudes of uh, of people um in the UK?
1: I think, um, yes. Uh, I mean, part of it was because I, I, I have been following, you know, at that time I was following the news and there have been massive, massive reports and TVs and radios, you know, and on the social media about refugees and refugees and, and numbers and numbers. And it's always you go and back, you know, these 65 million people displaced, 65 million people, these like faceless sixty-five million people um started you know kind of annoying me because i was living with many many of these people and they were human beings they were not just figures and numbers they were mothers they were fathers you know students engineers uh people from all walks of life you know and when when this opportunity came i said okay i am one of these 65 million and i'm going to make my contribution so um and again, this is the story of one person of six of these out of these sixty five million people so this was my hope this was my intention to to humanize it to make it like look it's not figures it's not faceless you know kind of um figures it's the humans there there are different types of people there there and um and they all have got their stories so I intended to share these stories um, well my own story at least um um so um People have an understanding of what thousands and probably millions of people are going through.
0: Mm, yeah, and the documentary has been very, um, uh, very successful as well. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you was: uh, you said just now that you you, you were in Germany, but then you, you wanted to come to the UK because you thought it might be easier uh, to get family um, reunification there. Um, so so was this always? Um, on your mind that you specifically wanted to go to the UK. And the reason I'm asking is also because, you know, there's this debate whether um, there should be more responsibility or, or so-called burden sharing um, where some people think that, you know, you should be, um, refugees should be sort of divided between countries more through more resettlement and quota system and reduce more the choices of where refugees um can go um so, I'm, so I was interested in hearing you know from your point of view um was it important for you to be able to um I mean it's obviously hearing your 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 journey it's not like it was easy to decide where to go but uh, do you see where do you see what I mean was it important that you could decide to go to the uk instead of staying in Germany
1: well look for me before I mean personally I before the Syrian conflict started. I was, you know, I was a student. I was doing my BA, as I mentioned um, at the beginning. I was doing my BA in English language and literature. I spent four years of my life studying, you know, the English literature, the history. I started with Chaucer, then I went to the Shakespearean era, I did the Renaissance literature. I went to the Victorian era and, and then to the, you know, um, contemporary English. And I was fascinated by the English and the literature um, from, from an early age, you um, and and then I mean I always wanted to come to this country before the conflict, you know, as as a as student probably as a tourist. Unfortunately, when the conflict started in my country, I did not have a choice, and um, because of like I lacked the documentation, no passport, nothing. So um, I did not intend to come to this country um, in 2011 or 12. I was still stuck, you know, not stuck. I decided to stay in the region because I was helping my families and I was helping my, you know, my friends. and was helping my people in 2011 and 12 and 13 and even to 14, you know. Um, but then I started noticing, like, this is going to be a very protracted situation with the Syrian conflict dragging on and on. And and thousands of people started losing hope. And I've, when I remember, like, my time working with many Syrian refugees, you know, in Iraq and in other parts, like in Turkey, um, there were... Thousands of children were born like, I mean, you know, um, they were born stateless. These people did not have any documentations. These people did not have, um, you know, um, no proper services. Many of these people were living in refugee camps and they could not access to education, though it was open for them, but there were massive challenges. And for me as a person, um, you know, even the host community at the beginning, it was very receptive. It was very, um, very welcoming. Things started changing as Iraq started descending into chaos, even in Turkey itself was was becoming very, very problematic, Uh, the political scene there, um, Syria, you know, um, the Russian intervention before that, you know, um, the full-scale civil war, and was hoping to go back, and we thought this might be um, a very short time so we could go back. Then we started realizing there's going to be very, very long-term conflict, and we could not see... You know, uh, it's, it's, you cannot predict what's going to happen next. So we, I, for me personally, I decided, okay, I need to make a move at least to get out of the Middle East for the time being till the situation gets better. And I, I started making, you know, kind of um, trying to figure out which should, where, where I should go, where I can kind of be more effective, where I can use my skills and, and the things that I have so england or let's say the uk was my first option obviously i wanted to go to the u.s to continue my education there because i got an offer but unfortunately i could not carry on because um, i didn't have my passport um i even i got like an offer to to carry on you know to do uh, to do my my university there but there was no no way for me without a passport so the only option was to make it you know um kind of, um, you know, to cross the borders. And um, the the reason why I decided to choose the UK was, first of all, I spoke a little bit English, which could save me two or three, sometimes four or five years learning a Swedish or German. Within two or three four or five years, you know, um, I could start a new life. I could build a business or could do something, you know, be more effective than sitting and and being, you know, passive learning a new language. The second reason was I, um, I kind of, I knew about the family reunion in the UK, which again was the, it was instrumental of why I decided to come to this country. After I received my refugee status and applied for a family reunion, after 29 days, only 29 days, the UK government gave me the permission to bring over my family from eastern Aleppo um, to the UK. I had friends, I, I have friends, you know, and, and family members who were living in Denmark and Germany. It took about two, up to three years, you know, and for them to get their family out of, from Syria. And for me at that time, um, you know, being separated from the family and living in Aleppo and eastern Aleppo in 2015, Uh, later than 15, 16, it was like every single moment, every single minute, you know, is as a matter of life or death. Imagine two years or three. So these were my primary um, reasons why I decided to come um, to the UK.
0: Mm. And how was, uh, so that was uh, very quick then to get the uh, family um, reunification uh, visa, but uh, what was the um, asylum process in itself like?
1: The asylum process, for me, um, I would say, compared to others, was very easy and straightforward. After I arrived in this country, I was detained by the police when I, I went there. And I said, well, I declare myself as, as a refugee, as an asylum seeker. So they detained me, fingerprinted me, and they kind of, they they, they, they transferred me to Yarlswood, um for, you know, um, kind of security check. After that, I was cleared and um, I had my interview, um, my my screening interview, and then I was dispersed to Wakefield, then to Middlesbrough. And after 90 days from the first interview, from the screening interview, I received my refugee status. So all in all, it was 90 days from the first day um, I arrived till the day I got my refugee status.
0: Mm yeah so so the last thing i wanted to um i wanted to ask which is quite a big question admittedly um is so so it sounds like your experience when you finally made it to the uk was quite good but uh, clearly the way to get there uh, was not good um and and as you know at the moment the un is developing this global compact on refugees when they're trying to um come up with some sort of uh, more uh, united or more international cooperation about um uh about refugee crisis so i don't know what would you what what what's your what would you hope to get out uh to get out from these new policy um developments like what what would be the priorities from your <clears throat> point of view uh, in terms of changing um kind of the the unhcr system and the global system
1: i mean again, I'm going to speak, you know uh, In the capacity of, of a Syrian person a Syrian person who lived in this conflict in the last seven week in the seven years, you know, I think um, for a lot of Syrians and, and even Iraqis and probably Libyans and, and, and Sudanese and Afghanis many of these people, you know, um, have lost faith. you know, they lost faith in the international community on all these policies and regulations I think when it comes to the refugee crisis, I think the best, the best people who, or the best group who is really has got the political, economic, social, and um, security capacities to tackle um, the so-called refugee crisis was Europe. Globally, 65 million people, you know, are refugees and internally displaced people. I mean, out of there are 20 million people, you know, are, are, are refugees. But again, if you look at the way. Um, Europe itself the the EU um, and the European Union, you know, responded, I would say it was really uh, chaotic and especially after like the Turkey deal and now there is something going on with with Libya deal, you know, and I don't know what's gonna happen after like this um, The revelations of the like uh, migrants or refugee, you know, slavery markets in Libya I think Mm -hmm. all in all I think the 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 when it comes to the global south there are Taking, you know, again, a lot of people say like sharing burden. I would say it's, it's it's not a burden It's just a responsibility. That's it's just a it's not a burden, you know, and globally, you know, if you look if you look at a country like Lebanon um, You know within 25% of their population has increased in the last few years Turkey itself or Iraq, um, you know, or, or Jordan they've been they've been doing a great job and in, in, in terms of, of responding to the, to the you know to the Syrian refugee um um you know influx but again it, when it comes international i think what is needed is political will when i say political will i mean by that the the superpowers you know like the 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 permanent members of the united um well the security council at least you know for instance if you look um at the us the the us the rhetoric over the last one year or so um, from building walls you know with mexico to banning muslims to reducing the number of uh, refugees resettled to the us this all are i would say they are indicators that things are not going um, very well and if you look at the at the let's say um the eu itself you know brexit itself um the the, the rise of the far right a lot of people are today and uh, they're seeing um well, they are perceiving immigration as a as a primary security threat, and they're pre-emptying it from its humanitarian, you know, component. And again, if you look at the 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 African well, say, at the African at least, and now Europe, well, the European Union is trying to tackle it with the you know with the with the African Union. But again, I think it's just probably from from what I see it, and I think this was the case with Turkey. It's just now you're just trying to to pay some people some money to keep the problem away from the mainland or from mainland or Europe. But again, this is I think this is not going to solve the problem because all these people need to come together. Um, Because, um, again, um, putting it on on, on Mali or putting it in on on Pakistan or on Iran is not going to solve the problem. All these people do not, you know, sit on the table and discuss properly on very on how they can come up with an effective you know policy to tackle this issue I think it's not gonna happen it's just gonna be more meetings and just more more briefings and documents but on the ground I think they will be um very 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 little value
0: hmm. perhaps if um I don't know if you hoping that taking part in something like exodus documentary and um perhaps breaking this um image that you talked about previously about the kind of faceless sixty five million um perhaps that would change the political will somewhat or public attitudes at least
1: i think there are two things here i mean um i think um the 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 role of grassroots or the civil society you know like um organizations and charities have have been f- you know, instrumental. They've done, I think they've done an incredible job when it comes to responding to the refugee crisis. And I remember like there've been dozens and dozens of, you know, grassroots groups coming together to respond, whether in in Greece and in Sweden, Germany, in the UK and and beyond. And I think they came up, you know, with, with different techniques and mechanisms and they responded in a way that was very effective, very swift, you know, and I understand and when it comes to the big players like unicef and 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 other you know international when it comes you know to refugees um organizations they they are kind of dependent on government, so they cannot intervene in terms of their because of their funding and other regulations so but again, I think the the i think the the these organizations um and again, I know it's problematic, but I think um at least they should have some independence, you know, um, and again, being impartial in terms of that, we want to support these people who are on the move, or they are stuck in refugee camps, or they're still, you know, internally displaced people, um, you know, at their homes. Because again, if you if you want to tackle these problems, you know, um, and the way I see it, the way I've seen it, and the, the way many people see it is a lot of uh, our focus is on the on the people on the move or the, just that we need to help these people or stuck in refugee camps or they made it to this country or that. But again, um, the main causes of these conflicts or, or, or you know, um, these displacements are being ignored. I know it's very difficult. I know it's political for, for instance, the Syrian crisis or the Syrian civil war um, demands, you know, political... Um, well, um to resolve it, so this crisis and the, the the influx out of it will be resolved. But I think uh, if you do not resolve this, there will be more and more people um, deciding to leave because, as I mentioned, over seven million people are today are in, are internally displaced people within Syria. And for these people, if they do not have an option, you know, um, I think some of them will be already like deciding to to move out of that country. Um, and to, 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 to at least to, to, to seek a better future, you know, somewhere else. So again, I think um, uh, it's, it's very difficult in terms of, of of how they can come together. But I think it needs political will. And as I mentioned before, it's very difficult now. These are very difficult times um, for politicians. These are very difficult times, especially for refugees. These are very very um, scary times to be a refugee. Um, in Europe and beyond, um, especially with the, with the rise, you know, of, of the far right and the rise of xenophobia and the toxic narrative about refugees, you know, being, you know, a security threat or, or being, you know, invaders. I think we need to look at this at the end of the day as the majority of these people are fleeing because of conflicts and because of war and because of, you know, tyranny and dictatorships. And again, if you look at the Syrian conflict, for instance, um, a country where 22 million people lived um, prior to the conflict, today there's only um, less than 60 million people are are living there. Um, Half of the population today is displaced. Um, About half a million people, you know, uh, are reported uh, to have lost their lives and about 7 million people are internally displaced. Over 5 million people are living outside, you know, the country as refugees. This all happened in the last um, seven years. And again, if people, um, if you see it, you know, the, you call it a crisis. Of course, it is a crisis. It's a crisis for these people who were deprived from their homes, from their loved one, whose life, you know, has been disrupted and and was turned up um, upside down.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting as well, what you're saying about, the focus always being on the people um the people on the move um and not necessarily on the conflict itself and the people who are um uh, who who haven't uh, crossed an international border yes. um and uh, there is this sense that um you know you were saying before there are sixty five million people who are displaced and twenty million of those who are um who are refugees um and it's almost like the situation is always described as it's worse the the more people um the more people become refugees and of course of course it's it's bad but in a way um perhaps it's better for for people like yourself who've actually um who've actually managed to leave
1: I think somehow. Yes, that's right. But on the other hand, I think um, this, for, for instance, when it comes to the Syrian coast, you know, the Syrian case, I was reading a book recently. Um, it was um, the, the, the book was started Refuge by um, Alexander Betts and, and, and Paul Collier. Mm-hmm. And that book mentioned that about 50 percent of Syrians with a university or a territory, you know, or a territory, you know, secondary school um, degree are today are out Syria this is going to be a disaster for my country um if the if the conflict comes to an end you know and these people do not go back because like this is like a systematic brain drain the people with the qualifications doctors engineers you know intellectuals um, nurses all these people are leaving the country and the issue is If you're a Syrian refugee or an asylum seeker in Europe, let's say in in Germany or in in, in the UK or in Sweden or in Belgium or in France, will you have an incentive to go back to Syria if the conflict comes to an end in in the coming two or three years, taking into account the mass destruction that happened there? I remember I was reading a report by the World Bank and they mentioned that about 20% of the housing stock in Syria is completely destroyed or partially damaged you know I mean do these people have an incentive to go back home but what do you mean by home I mean home is lost for, for a lot of these people there is no trace of home whatsoever completely vanished destroyed you know where can these people go back you know and again um, um, it, it's a big issue it's really it, it brings a lot of dilemmas for, for policymakers here in this country and beyond, whether do we want to keep these people here for, for a few years and, and not allow them to integrate in the hope that they can go back, or should we help them integrate here and then, and let's say, uh, for, for for five years and they can have open access you know, to employment, education, and other um, services and benefits, then will they have an incentive to go back when the conflict comes to an end? So I think this is really like uh, massive massive questions that creates a lot of challenges for everyone including refugees themselves
0: yeah i can imagine um for refugees themselves it's it would be a big dilemma especially depending on how long you've uh, um how long you've been away for
1: that's true as i mentioned um in turkey alone um since 2011 there are dozens and dozens of thousands of syrian children born in exile They are syrians but they've never been to syria they do not know where syria is they they, they've got no no understanding of what syria is if you compare the situation again it comes to syrians you know who made it to, to 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 europe for instance the new generation the syrian children who are going to be you know born in this country or beyond in europe you know and they would be called syrians but they are not syrians because somehow they've never been to that country yeah i mean i met many many syrian families who've got family you know children age two three or four and five in some incidents you know and and i met them in sweden the children speak you know fluent sweden or swedish fluent german or uh, fluent french or english you know and they were kind of they spent most i mean most of their lives here In in, in Europe, not in Syria, there is four or five or six. And some of them, they spend their whole life in Europe, you know. um, And they, they, for instance, some of these people, um, they cannot speak even like Arabic. Um, And again, this is creating like an identity crisis because for the parents, they want their kids um, to grow up you know, clinging into, like, the the Syrian identity. But again, it's a different culture. It's it's somehow, you know, different in terms of integration. People, like, you find families, you know, kind of split. They do not know what to do with their kids. Shall they go to this, attend this school? Shall they... um, So I think it's creating a lot of uh, problems in terms of integration, in terms of identity. Who are you? Are you a Syrian? Are you uh, a British? Are you a Swedish? Um, What identity... So I think this also brings a lot of dilemmas you know and challenges for the for the Syrian families themselves when it comes to the power dynamics within the the, the families the Syrian refugee families um all over the world.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Um is there anything else that you'd like to add that we've um, that we've not talked about? <clears throat>
1: um I think um I just Want to make the point that a lot of these people um, talk about the the refugee um, mm-hmm. crisis, you know, um, when it comes to Europe, but they really do not mention anything about a crisis when they talk about other parts of the world. I think um, the these this this kind of this issue should be tackled. As I mentioned, the majority of these people are not living in the, in Europe; they are living in in other parts of the world. You know, and when it comes to the refugees themselves, um, I think um, for those who made it to Europe, um, I think there's a great potential, you know, if, if the, the host governments, the host communities, you know, um, uh, invest in these people. And one of the things, um, again, and because uh, in terms of employment or education, whatever, but one thing that I would really like to highlight is education. There's like a young generation, it's a young people, you know, if you look at the, the age range, the people who are arriving in Europe, they are young people. And I think um, there's a great potential um, if Europe, you know, if, if they want to, to, to help these people, hopefully in the future, to go back and rebuild their country, to invest in the education of these young people arriving um, in Europe. Uh, I was reading a, a report recently and the report mentioned that only 1% of Europe refugees go to universities, I mean, to higher education, you know, in terms of masters or PhDs. I'm not very sure how uh, how accurate that number is. But again, I think this is this is the big, big uh, challenge because at the end of the day, uh, if you want, you know, to bring about peace and, and, and rebuild these, these countries, you know, and help people rebuild it, you need educated people. You need to invest in education. Um, As I mentioned, and I keep repeating myself all the time, you know, education is a tool um, of mass construction. So it's very worth um, um, investing in it.
0: To find out more about Ahmed Al-Rashid, please visit our website, talkinmigration.com. That was all for this time. Thank you for listening.